This path is such that you have a plan of what you're going to do. And then something happens. Invariably, things don't go the way you planned. And so you have to rethink, readjust. Sometimes the thing that happens is major, like an illness, a cancer, a death in the family, an accident. Then we have to realign ourselves to that reality, or that event, that new situation in our life. Like this morning, Trish, who knows very well how to use these lighters, was unable, and we didn't have to light. Some of you might be thinking, why bother? What's it for? What's the difference if we light lights or don't light lights? There's something really lovely about these small rituals. They don't free us in any way. We shouldn't give that kind of magical importance to them. But they create a lovely sense of beauty and brightness and something to focus on a sense of specialness about the occasion because we are taking the time to make the moment extra important on the outside and then that reflects in. Once we establish that the lights were special and we give the attention and the care that is needed, then of course even what looks impossible, the lighter doesn't work so now what do we do? Turn the thing upside down, there's not enough oxygen. There's no way you're going to light those lights. Well, if you want to do something enough, if you care enough, you can find a way. Think of the times in your own life when you came up against what seemed like a brick wall, impenetrable. You can't go over it or make a tunnel through it or break it down whether it's a wall of obstacles outside of you or something inside of you like mental obstacles fear nervousness anxiety lack of confidence lack of trust lack of care lack of care is 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 really a big obstacle because then you quit, stop trying. But because we care, we find more lights and then pop them in and there you go, we have light. We go searching for a solution. It's only a minor thing, but as an example of how do we overcome obstacles? So when you're loved one, dearest and nearest, or, or one of us, we ourselves, get cancer. Pancreatic cancer is very serious, isn't it? How much time does that give? A year? Five years? What they say, I don't know. 
Or maybe it's not if they catch it early. But whatever it is that comes our way, if we understand that not as an obstacle, but as something to deepen us, it's like a new beginning. You can't talk people into that. Dave asked, what do I say to my cousin who, who has cancer? What do I say? We can ourselves understand because we're learning what to do with these conditions. But you can't bring somebody to that just because they are suddenly in a crisis. That's why doing this practice when we're not in crisis, or maybe we are, but that's very good that you come here. Well, all of us are in crisis because we're in this human realm and we're conflicted. We're not complete. If we were complete, we wouldn't have to go anywhere. Sometimes the best thing we can do is just ourselves be that peace, that stillness, and bring a sense of stillness to the person and sit with them and listen. Let them express their, their fear and their sadness and their, their pain to you. And while they're doing that, with all your heart, listen openly and let them feel the space that you have within you. Deepen that space within you and they will feel it. Sometimes the best thing we can do is just bring an unconditional love and compassion as much as we can to that person and be present for them. Be present and keep lighting the light in our own mind. Not to be dampened by their pain or weakened by it. Not to be overwhelmed and struck off balance by their pain. But to see it as the pain of a struggling being unable to accept the situation that's given, unable to surrender to the conditions and to see the blessing or the teaching or the way through. The way through doesn't mean that the illness disappears. All of us are terminal. A few weeks ago, oh no, it was a few days ago, I was visiting a man and his wife. She was sick and couldn't come down. And they had just moved into their purpose-built home. And they were very happy there, retired and living in a beautiful place. We were talking about possible locations in the country for a little nun's hermitage. He didn't know of anyone that had a place for sale and then he said we're staying in terms of his place and immediately my thought was oh really we think we're, we're we're there forever he said I'll never leave here 
course, we're, we're all going to leave. We're all leaving. And they're in their 60s and 70s. It just seemed like a very unconscious way of speaking. Of course we realize that we're all leaving, but then we, we deny it. And we live as if we have forever. When we have the attitude of forever, there's no urgency to probe more deeply into the meaning. The whole world is whirling as if we have forever, not only as if we have forever in terms of time or life, but as if we have forever in terms of resources, energy, clean air, everything, as if as if it'll all just go on forever. There's nothing to be concerned about. To have a diagnosis that tells you that you are terminal or that you're in danger is actually a wake-up call. And we all need one. We all need one. The suffering is, this the human journey, inevitably brings us to a place where there be suffering of one form or another. Whether it's created consciously by us or unconsciously. We hurt ourselves or damage ourselves because of irresponsible choices or unwise choices or carelessness. Or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This, of course falling in line with the laws of karma which we can't explain and can't have any foreknowledge of we don't want to get into sermons with others about these matters when they're not open when they haven't opened to those possibilities but perhaps their predicament such a predicament has the potential to open one's heart if we can surrender, if we can accept and welcome this terrible, difficult, very painful illness and look at our path ahead courageously and as a spiritual being rather than as a human being experiencing loss. It's really the way we perceive and receive what is happening. So the best we can do when someone is unable to surrender is for ourselves to be surrendered and joyful as much as we can. Not to cheer them up artificially, but just to bring them like watering the plant. The plant is drying up. You give it nourishment. So you bring some sense of your own understanding and joy, nonverbal. That's communicated. Just like if someone in this room were having a panic attack or an outburst of anger, I can't stand it here anymore, for some reason or something upset them, then we would all contract and loud voice, angry words, What's the result of that? Feel that here? You may get nervous or wonder what's the matter with them. 
the mind will certainly get going, moving, dynamic there. Maybe we try to shut them up. That's not very effective because resistance will just add fuel to the The angry voice and the overheated energy spread so easily. And in the same way, the stillness, the presence, this awareness that we're cultivating here has a power. And it spreads. If we hold the space and are expansive ourselves, then we do have the ability to sit with someone who may not know how to bring space into their heart and we transmit that. Then, of course, try everything possible to bring physical comfort medically. Do what is necessary to preserve, prolong life, this precious life. It's not, well, that's it. I'm out of here, so might as well end it now. That's wrong view. That's definitely wrong thinking. I had a friend in New Zealand who was diagnosed with secondary cancer spread to her digestive system and was in various organs. It was really not looking good. And she called me up. I rushed to the hospital. And she said, I want to walk into the ocean. I said, you can't. This is an opportunity. She was a Buddhist and a meditator. There's no hope for me. I'm, I can't take this. I'm, as soon as I'm out of the hospital, I want to just walk into the ocean. and It'll be easier for everyone. This is the ego. Rationalizing. Not wanting to go towards that would be a very painful situation. And certain level of denial there that there is anything to live for. Of course there is. And thinking that we have the right to just end things because we don't like it. It's not what I want. I only want what I want, not what I don't want. That's ego. The heart knows the journey. From the purest place in our heart when we're connected to the presence, then we know that that isn't the way. It's like a child having a tantrum. So with a little bit of encouragement, she agreed not to do that and to stick it out. There was a little group of us, good friends, that would stay close and support the process. After a very, very complex surgery, where they removed so many bits of her, she said that half her body was on the table. Then they stuffed it all back in, and she lived for a year. A wonderful year. And in that year, there was so much resolution so much resolving took place. So much accepting, so much letting go, so much living at 55 
She lived another 20 years in one year in terms of spiritual maturity and died translucent and peaceful. And all the great lamas you can think of managed to come and visit her in that year. She was a very special being. To have all those wonderful lamas come to her bedside and chant with her and prayer sessions in the, in the hospice, weekly chapel, meditations. And so many people got energized in their spiritual work as a result of this woman's illness. It wasn't an illness after all. It was a doorway into the emptying of the heart. That's what we're trying to do here. So those who are wise and who have right understanding of the conditioned world and an appreciation for the possibility of bringing the unconditioned to life within us have no fear of death. Death is just a step on the journey. But it's a very important step because we go from form to formlessness. We don't know if we go to the absolute formlessness, but certainly we lose this form and then reappear we don't know where or how. But having finished our work here, there's nothing left to fear. There's a complete acceptance that this is right. This is right. All of us are coming to that point. And this is our rehearsal to die to the body. We're dying to the mind. Quite a big step is to die to the body. We're so wired up to it that it's very difficult to disengage from this and not to feel that this is me. Is that you? Are you there? That looks like you. Who is this you and this me that we think we are? Maybe you don't need to say much. It isn't really fair to try to teach someone with words when they're facing such a serious physical predicament. They're like a captive audience. But it's an imperative for us to be a spiritual ally to that person. Just as we're trying to be spiritual allies to ourselves, Death may come and it may not. Well, it will, but it may not in terms of what has been diagnosed. Doctors are not gods. They're human beings. They have no knowledge of the future. They don't know what the karma of their patient is. They diagnose in terms of cellular discovery and analysis. Beyond that, the diagnosis and then the prescription, the medicine, Let's get the treatment going. The only treatment to stop death is to stop birth. 
What is the cause of death? We're born. It's not heart attack or ALS. The cause of death is birth. We are born. We live a certain number of years and then we die. So to prepare for that, loving kindness and compassion already has acceptance and the ability to reach out to others depending on to what level we can develop it in ourselves. To that extent, we can communicate that correspondingly to another. This is where to begin. Maybe there aren't words. There need not be words. There may be just the friend who listens. And then when there's an opening, what should I do? then you might say, well, let's see how to relax the body. Start with just physically relaxing and learning how to be in the present moment physically. And the mind wants that, so eventually it may be the opportunity to introduce a component of bringing the attention to the body or a classical music meditation not coming with our ideas of birth is the cause of death and doesn't matter anyway and you can't go and tell these things to sometimes I hesitate even to say it here you might all say don't tell me that I don't want to know because I'm in love with life life is great I'm not a life denying person but to understand the reality of our situation and to get the true happiness from it that is not death bound as we are as the body is not we but the physical component the the life situation our connections our friends I have a friend whose daughter died when she was 15 just a few years ago her name was Alice she had cancer she was a beautiful girl. I never met her, but I, I saw photographs of her as the illness progressed. And then one of the very last photographs, just before she died, she was translucent. These two eyes, limpid, magnificent two eyes, staring straight at the camera, just completely there. One day she said to her mother, Mom, my heart has opened. And her mother said, Oh, that's great, Alice. And she said, Yes, I feel like I love everyone. She said, Dying is hard because I have to say goodbye to all of you. And it's lonely because I have to say goodbye to myself. And yet she did. She had some sense of understanding. I think her mother must have told her a few things about the teachings of rebirth. And she said, next time when I'm coming out of my mother's womb, I'm going to yell so loud that everyone's going to know I'm back. 
<laughs> that was Alice. Just 15 and such a wise young woman. Wisdom comes hard. Perhaps with younger people, they are less burdened. They haven't tasted too much of the world, so it's easier to let go. But not always. Trust your heart when you're sitting with someone who's facing painful conditions, whether it's a physical illness or someone has died, terrible grief. Like John's mother, Christina, when I called her, she was lying in her bed and she said, I can't take it. Very difficult on the phone from hundreds of miles away, and of course, her not knowing me very well, to say anything. I just would have liked to be there next to her and just hold her hand and be present. Wipe her tears with a tissue. Maybe do a little chant. Chanting is wonderful. And try to take her pain into the space of my heart and bring out a loving feeling. This is a exchange of energy. Through the silence, something is transmitted. And then if the person opens up and says, what does death mean? Why did I get cancer? Then from whatever we understand that can help to open a door or a window for them, we can try. But we have to be very careful not to become overzealous because of what we believe or what we've experienced. Just to keep it very simple. I remember when my mother was dying, she went into a coma and I was chanting as much as I could till she passed away. It was two days, it was 48 hours, but I had little naps and my father was watching all this and then he said to me, when I die, will you do that for me? It was a little different with him, but I did. He was in the hospital, wired up to everything. My mother was at home, so we had the freedom. But in an intensive care, you can't stay there all the time. But in the very last moments, he couldn't move. I put my lips to his ear and I started chanting. His heart was just, we watched the monitor, it was just stopping. I could see his head just go like this. He was trying to tell me, I hear you. I knew, because the hearing is the last sense to go. It's the love we're communicating. That's powerful. If we clear our own hearts out, empty out the rubbish, so much rubbish we carry around, and then come and sit with our loved one through their pain, with our dear friends, relatives, children, can't predict who it'll be, or parents through their agonies, 
traumas. That's a gift. Maybe our silence and the spaciousness of our silence is the greatest gift we can bring. And then if we can slip a little word, let them ask. Don't impose. They have so little space in their minds. Don't crowd them out of what they've left for themselves. Because the ego is, is operating and it's crowded in there. Often, not always. And if a moment of luminosity arises or appears, then take advantage of it. Perhaps say something that you think might be heard, might sound doable. Read some lovely poem or a passage. When I read the notes that my friend had written under Alice's photograph about what she had said, I was on a retreat and it put me into such a space of stillness and this girl had been dead for a few years. Sometimes just reading about someone else's awakening and it might not be called that, it's just someone else's insight is enough. The cancer itself opens us up It puts us in a place of danger that we don't want to be in. When we're in a place of danger, the body is triggering an emergency response system. The adrenaline starts. Do you ever try to save someone from an accident or a situation? You drop everything and you can even go into a burning house and pull someone out. But you wouldn't go into a burning house if no one was in there. There's no way you would. But if someone was inside and you felt you could get them out, you would run. I remember the story that Ajahn Sachito told when he was in India, one of our elder monks. He went on a pilgrimage and he and his companion, a lay person, Nick Scott, was with him, looking after him because we don't handle money and we can't feed ourselves, so Nick had to take care of him. And they were on this walk in Rajgir, which is a pretty wild area. And they were attacked by bandits. And Nick ran away. He just escaped at <laughs> top speed. And he ran into a thicket. This is a jungle area so fast that he didn't even feel the brambles tearing his clothing and scratching his skin. He was so full of fear, that's how fast he ran. And then he suddenly remembered. (laughs) One of the bandits ran after him, but because he wasn't running from fear, when he got to the bramble area, he couldn't penetrate through it because the thorns were cutting him. So Nick escaped. Meanwhile, the other bandit held a knife over Ajahn Suchito's head and said, I'm going to kill you. Ajahn Suchito offered him his head. And then he didn't. And they left. And then Nick came back. <laughs> Shamefacedly. 
bleeding. Fear is such a power. So when we're afraid, the possibility of us being more open when we're fearful, when we're so frightened, if someone gives us a gift, it's a tremendous thing. We might be so frightened of the condition that we'll take anything. But not to belittle that. That it's, it's a portal, it's an opening, a possibility for an awakening. Because there is such a fear, there's such a sense of danger, such a sense of an imminent something. Give me a door. Tell me the way. Point me there and I'll go. Maybe the inclination to surrender depends on the character type. Some of us are more stubborn. I'm not dying. I'm not going anywhere. Like my friend in his house. If we can stop the mind, then the possibility to drop down into the presence is there. As long as we're thinking, how do I, the ego, is wanting to get rid of this cancer? I want to get rid of my anger. But the cancer doesn't belong to us, nor does the anger. It's all the trip of the selfish, self-centered ego structure, which isn't real, which doesn't exist in real terms. It's the conditioned mind being squeezed into a smaller and smaller space, fighting to get on top of it, to control it, to win. It can't win. There's nothing to win because it is completely artificial. And that's what we cling to. Then we become bound. It's like we're handcuffed to it, strapped to, tangled up with it. We, we don't know how to disentangle from that. We just give up and let it rule. But there's another way of giving up, which is not to the panic to stay in control mind state but it's to let go of control altogether. Just like when we fall asleep. But this is the opposite. We're falling awake. Falling, letting go, awake, waking up. It's not adding anything. It's just opening the window and breathing the light that is there, already there, running through us, burning in us, to make it burn brighter, we have to apply ourselves and incline ourselves in the direction of what will really nourish the truth in us and not what is false, what will nourish integrity and not disingenuousness. What will nourish wisdom and not madness. Are you saying I'm mad? You might think. Yes. We're all, there's a madness. All of us, the world is mad. But the world says that we're mad. Let them think what they want. The biggest madness is to turn your back on what is true. 
why don't we do a few minutes of silent sitting?